I'm sure we've all thought, or all have said at some time, ignorance is bliss, but it isn't. You know, it's dangerous not to know truth. It's dangerous to be in ignorance. Many times we could have lost our lives or become injured if we hadn't known that there was some catastrophe ahead. It's a wonderful thing to have knowledge, especially the knowledge of God. And today we're going to look at unveiling the mysteries of God so that you and I can know what God wants us to know so we can be forewarned, forearmed, and ready for anything. In 1 Corinthians 12, we read this uh, phrase, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Let's just take that last phrase. I do not want you to be ignorant. You see, Corinth was a multicultural city. It was thriving. It was wealthy. There were people from all over the Grecian world and even beyond that who came to this great metropolis. And Corinth was full of wonder over the newly formed Church of Jesus Christ. Yes, God had moved in a mighty way and the Apostle Paul had founded a church there and it was full of Gentile believers and some Jewish believers as well. And when they got into the mix of being together in the body of Christ, there were all kinds of upheavals. It wasn't easy to be in the early church, especially with those that had come from outside the Judeo imprint. That is, those that have had some knowledge of the Word of God, and the Jews certainly did. And when they began to mix with fellow believers who were Gentiles, they found it rather hard. Now, the Ephesian letter is all about that, but we'll get to that a little later on. 1 Corinthians tells us a wonderful story. And the book of Acts, of course, tells us even more about this church. It was a mixture. And, of course, many of those that had come out of the heathen world had no knowledge at all of the things of God or the nature of God or the plans of God or the prophecies of God. They knew little or nothing. So they knew Christ. He was their Savior. He was their Lord. He was their wonderful example. But that's about all. Whereas the Jews could draw upon millenniums of understanding, the law and the prophets and the calendar of God prophetically, they knew all that. But now, of course, Christ was the common denominator between the two of them. There was a lot of excess and a lot of ignorance and a lot of error in the Corinthian church, but their fervor was very, very deep. Their fervor was great. They wanted to serve God. And so the Apostle Paul, in the first letter, grabs some of the things that were troubling them at the time, 
their emphasis on the Lord's Supper, their morality, or immorality for that matter, and of course, the spiritual gifts. He said, we've just got to straighten out a few things. And that's what God is doing for all of us. When we come to know him, God is straightening us out. We get saved by grace. We get saved through the mercy of God, the power of the Spirit. We are regenerated, but we're often an empty vessel, not only spiritually, but mentally, intellectually. We don't know much. And so that's where good, solid teaching comes in. You know, some people never really do understand all that God has got for them. They don't fulfill their potential in God. That's very sad. And when you ask them, well, what kind of teaching have you had? It's almost nothing. It's just a tidbit here and a fragment there and something else somewhere else that they've picked up. The church has got to get back to inspirational, anointed teaching of the word. That's why the Bible says, both Paul said it, and of course, Peter, the apostle said it, feed the flock of God that is among you. Feed them. Don't just throw a titbit here and a titbit there and just get them excited, entertained, inspired momentarily, but lay foundations. Because the days that we are in now require we need something more than just an emotional faith in Jesus Christ. We need solid food. We need meat. We need to know who we are in God. We need to know what to expect from God. We need to even know comprehensively what's going in the, on in the world. We need to know that there is a battle going on in the heavenlies, and we need to be fortified. We need to be strengthened. We need to be directed. We don't need to be ignorant. Ignorance is not bliss. It's a trauma and a tragedy when we face dark times and realize, hey, I'm not ready for what I'm going through. Many of the casualties of our Christian faith, people that have fallen by the wayside, have been as the parable of the sower and the seed indicates. They've been very fervent, but they were shallow. There wasn't any depth in their experience. And so we need to be tilling the soil. We need to be watering the word with prayer, with the moving of the spirit. We need to be sowing seeds through the word of God so that people are strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The Bible talks about the fact that there are many mysteries that are mysteries indeed and have been historically for a long, long time. In fact, so much so that the angels even had to them a lot of, not confusion, but had incomplete understanding. And the Bible says that they even desired to understand the things of God. 
that God had done. They, they didn't understand the full gamut of redemption. Now, the Bible tells us here in 1 Peter some wonderful things. Here in chapter 1, these words. He says, you love him even though you have never even seen him. And though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this great salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. You see, even though the prophets in the Old Testament had a knowledge of God and had a revelation of the Spirit and they spoke it, they declared it, and they wrote it down and we have those prophecies today, they didn't fully comprehend what had been given to them. And so verse 11 of chapter 1 of the first epistle of Peter says, they searched of what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. And you know in Israel today there are many people who are very, very committed to the ancient scriptures, the scriptures of the law and the prophets and uh, the historical books and the Psalms as well. But they are confused over the teaching of the Messiah. They can't understand Isaiah 53. They will say to you, I think this means this is the suffering body of Israel the people of Israel who have suffered because of their commitment to our God, the God of Israel. You see, when they think about the Messiah, they see him in all his coming glory. They see him as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, because they have the prophets to draw on. They take, for instance, Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And they cannot in any way, shape, or form accommodate the thought that he would suffer humiliation, that he would be crucified, that he would be cursed, he would be cast out from the city wall and find his place among criminals in death. They have no comprehension of that. So when they read Isaiah in the 53rd chapter or Psalms 16, they find it too hard to grasp that he would go into a grave not suffer corruption, but what does this all mean? So many, many faithful Jewish people today are indeed wondering and wandering in their minds and in their faith 
and with confusion trying to work out how do you counterbalance the suffering Messiah with the glorious one? Well, we know, of course, from the New Testament that there is the coming of Messiah as Redeemer and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then as he comes again the second time, filled with the power and the glory and the blessing and the splendor of the kingdom that he comes from and takes us to. And so the prophets even thought, how do you counterbalance these two revelations? They know they came from God. And to them it was revealed, but not to themselves, but to us that they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you, says Peter, in the 12th verse and the 13th verse, first chapter of 1 Peter. In other words, what we have in the New Testament is the fulfillment of the old, its prophecies, its promises, and God is revealing to us the hidden mystery which is a mystery no longer. And when we go across to Ephesians and the third chapter, we find a similar theme. The Apostle Paul, like Peter, talks to the Ephesians. He starts off in verse 1 by saying, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed You have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he has made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and the prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. He's speaking here of a mystery, and it is a mystery indeed. It is that the Jews and the Gentiles would be united as one body in Christ. And he said, this is the great mystery that God had concealed in the Old Testament era. But now in Christ and by the Spirit, it has been revealed that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him, that's it, whosoever believes on him, should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the mystery of Christ. This is the mystery 
of Christ and the church. And it is a mystery to the Jews until, of course, the gospel is fully revealed to them. And it took a mighty revelation for it to be revealed. How do we know that? Well, we go back to the book of Acts, don't we? And how many times have I walked the little laneways of Joppa and thought, in this little place, just overlooking the metropolis of Tel Aviv today, which did not exist then, in Joppa, a marvelous thing occurred. That Peter, the apostle-to-be, had gone up and was just preparing himself for lunch and, and decided to spend some time in prayer. And as he was both hungry and in prayer, he fell into a trance. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10 talks all about it. He saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him let down to the earth, and in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, ugly things, birds of the air. And the voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14, chapter 10 of Acts. But Peter said, No way, Lord for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. I'm a good Hebrew man. I live by the law. I live by the food laws as well as the moral law and the ceremonial law. And the voice spoke to him again, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. That is the sheet with all these unclean animals. And Peter began to wonder what this could mean. And just as he was wondering about it and considering it and shocked by it, Cornelius had come and had made inquiry at Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, go down and go with them. Doubt nothing. And Peter went down to the men who had been sent from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. What reason have you that you should come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man who fears God and has a good reputation among the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. And then he invited them in, lodged them, and on the next day went with them up the coast to Caesarea. And when they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was waiting for them. 
And he called together his relatives, his close friends, his household were there. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius fell down at his feet and started worshipping him. Peter said, whoa, no, 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 don't do that. I myself am also a man, a messenger of God, but not God. And as he talked with him, he found many there who had come together. And he talked about the fact that God had spoken to Israel, set Israel apart to be a nation under God, to be a revealing nation a declaring nation, a holy nation, the least of all nations, but a mighty nation under God as witness and testimony of the things of God, the law of God, the nature of God, but also the plan of God, which was ultimately in Christ to include the Gentiles, that they too might be saved. And that this had been a mystery veiled to him that he hadn't really known, that he hadn't really understood, except for the immediate past revelation that he just had. So he came fresh with this revelation. And Peter opened his mouth, chapter 10 of Acts, verse 34, and he said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord over us all. And then he preached Christ and gave them understanding and talked about all that had transpired in Jerusalem, about Jesus being crucified, not only for Jews, but Gentiles as well. And he commanded us, says Peter, to preach to the people. And then it becomes real to him. Jesus had said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. To what? To whom? To every creature. Go into the world. Don't just seek out Jews where they're scattered throughout the world, but go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Make disciples, Matthew says in Matthew 28. Make disciples of all nations, not just the Jews within those nations, but all nations. Oh, it just all came together. The curtain was raised, and now he could see clearly the whole concept of God's universal redemption for the human race, that God had anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we, says Peter, are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging him on a tree. God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. 
And the Bible says that as he kept preaching from the prophets and every vestige and every part of this glorious universal gospel of regeneration and redemption, while he was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were there, as many as had come with Peter, because of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. And they were amazed. They were absolutely transfixed. And they realized God had brought the Gentiles in because, because they had received the Holy Spirit just as we have because they heard them speaking with tongues as the Jewish believers did initially and subsequently from the first day of the outpouring on the day of Pentecost. And so they were baptized, all these believers, in Cornelius's home. And Cornelius was there heading the whole charge. He said, yes, I want to be baptized too, filled with the Holy Ghost, baptized as a believer. So the mystery was a mystery no longer. And now they began to see that God had indeed ordained the nations. And as they progressed in this revelation, they were able to draw what had been obscure, obscure prophecies from the Old Testament that talked about the fact that the Gentiles would grab a hold of a Jew and say, take us with you, because we see that God is with you. In other words, you have something we want. Now the Jews outside of Revelation had thought, oh, that means that they are going to become proselyte Jews. They're going to just become, well, Jews in order to keep the law and be righteous. They'll be converts. But no, it was the Christ within those that were Jews that had the born-again experience. They were going to share that faith. And the two would become one. Until Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Male or female, bond or free, we are all one in Christ Jesus. The Jew doesn't forfeit his Jewishness. The Gentile doesn't have to become a Jew in order to receive Christ. Christ comes in and fills all in all. Now, there's a mystery of Christ, isn't it amazing? that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. The world, not just Israel, the world, Israel, the Jew, and the Gentiles as well. So this mystery, the mystery of Christ and his church, is amazing. In the past days, we have talked about the mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of iniquity that will be a spiritual darkness, a turbulence that will take place in the end times, culminating in the great tribulation period 
of the Antichrist, the false prophet, all the terrible times that are ahead for those that are duped and bound because of their unbelief. But we're going to leave it there for the time being and come back next time and talk about another beautiful mystery. The Bible says great is the mystery of godliness. So be with us next time when we talk about yet another mystery that's been solved, a mystery that is no longer a mystery. Thank you.